ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What on earth is everyone's problem with spiders? Why all the hate? That's what James O'Hanlon wants to know. James O'Hanlon is a scientist with a PhD in animal behaviour and he's particularly intrigued with the secret world of insects and spiders. Spiders don't make good domestic pets, but James says that some kinds of spiders are not only beautiful, but they're even cute. And even the not-so-cute ones are fascinating. Most of us are unaware of their complex and remarkable tiny lives hidden in the undergrowth or in trees. And spiders are now at the forefront of all kinds of research because spider silk, for such it is called, is stronger than steel and stretchier than rubber. It is the toughest material produced by any creature on the planet. James O'Hanlon's book is called Silk and Venom, The Incredible Life of Spiders. Hi, James. G'day, Richard. You begin your book with a shocking act of violence. <laughs> it's, and it's perpetrated not by a spider, but on a spider by an assassin bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've sort of seen the lead up to this sort of thing. T- tell, me, tell, me, <laughs> tell me what's required to witness the, the astonishingly evil homicide of this spider by an assassin bug. So these are assassin bugs. They prey on the kind of spiders that build webs. Now, if you picture that spider, it's sitting in its web. It's got its legs poised on the silk. It's using its web essentially like a giant ear. It's listening to the world around it. And the assassin bug uses that superpower against it. So these assassin bugs, if you ever see them, they're these most frail, waif-like creatures. They almost look like they're made of spider silk. I imagine because they have to actually step onto the spider silk without drawing attention to them. Once they're on the web or near the web, they'll reach out with these long front arms and just start gingerly plucking the spider's web. They, they what, like a guitar string or something? Yeah, exactly. And how long will they sit on the web doing that for? They could do this for hours, you know, six, eight hours, because it's such a dangerous game. You know, very quickly that spider could, you know, turn around and use its trap to catch the, the assassin bug. So it takes its time, just very gently plucking the spider, hears these vibrations, goes, oh, there's, there's, there's something over there. I'm going to go check it out. And they'll very gingerly wander over. Now, this spider, these uh, orbo spiders don't have very good eyesight, so they probably can't actually see the assassin bug right there in front of them. They're just hearing the sound of something in the web. Can they smell that, smell that something's wrong there, that it's not, it's not prey? Can they smell something there at all? Well, they would just be smelling their own silk, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So once they get, they get closer and closer to this assassin bug, once they might get so close that that assassin bug is essentially poised right above them. So these are... Uh, you know, they're very, very long legs, so they can arch up above the spider and they have these long, piercing mouth parts. It's a tube that sticks out from their head. Once the spider's close enough and they're, they're confident they're not going to get caught by the spider, they just jam that needle syringe-like mouth part into the back of the spider's head. But they spike the spider they in the head. Spike the spider. Right. Yep. And, and then what happens with the spike? So they can inject their, their own venom, essentially, that, that will you know, incapacitate the spider. And then they start releasing digestive fluids through that spike into the spider. Yeah. And it just starts digesting the spider in, from the inside out. So the inside of that spider, inside the exoskeleton, just turns into this lovely little spider soup that the assassin bug can then suck back up and, and eat. So, so it prepares the meal by mm. sticking its digestive juices inside the spider, so it starts to, what, just disintegrate from within? Yeah, it's a bit of a twist of fates because this is kind of how spiders eat as well. They'll do the same thing. They'll uh, spit out digestive fluids onto their prey. Their prey turns into a little bit of a mushy soup and they, they suck it back up again. So, yeah, spiders aren't the only formidable predators out there in the leaf litter. I've seen humans behave worse than that with their meals. <laughs> I don't know, on Harris Street on a Friday night. <laughs> What is it about spiders that drew you into their world rather than make you scuttle away from them like many people would do? It's a tricky answer because it's kind of everything. You know, there are so, so many different 
things that spiders do. And that's simply not represented by the stereotypes we've given them. We picture the long-legged huntsman on the wall. You know, we don't picture the spider mother that carries a clutch of babies around on her abdomen. We don't picture uh, the, the spiders that uh, can walk on water or can swim. You know, there, there's so much more. And I, I just find this such a fascinating world to, to dive into and find out all those little weird things you've never heard about. Yeah, we're going to do marine biology to begin with. So what veered you away from that towards the undergrowth? So, yeah, the original plan was to go off and do a marine biology degree. And I think maybe that was just because it sounded cool. You know, at the end of high school, you don't know what to do. Marine biology sounds cool. The plan was to go off and spend my life you know, swimming with dolphins and whales and patching seals or whatever, whatever marine biologists do, who knows. But then, I don't know, I think once I got in there and started studying, they were just a little bit too trendy. You know, everyone loves dolphins and whales and there's, I think there's something in me that always roots for the underdog. And so when I started hearing about all these little creatures hidden in the undergrowth, living these miraculous lives right underneath our noses that we don't know about, it was just so tantalising. I had to, to go in there and, and start studying it. So these tiny little powerful dramas that escape our notice nearly mm. all the time. That's not what we see. There's two broad categories of spiders. Uh, you've named them as the araniomorphs and the megalomorphs. If I said that right? Megalomorphs? That's Megalomorphs, one of those things. Maybe, right. I don't know, maybe I've only ever seen it written down. <laughs> What's the difference between these two broad categories? Right, so the megalomorphs are maybe the ones we picture as the big spooky spiders. These are your big uh, tarantulas and funnel webs who walk along the ground. They have fangs that point directly downwards. They sort of uh, pin their prey on the ground underneath them. The uranomorphs are the uh, much, much more common, more diverse. There's more uranomorphs and these are your web builders, essentially. These are much smaller, much prettier. And the main distinguishing feature of them is, again, their mouth parts point in towards each other. So they sort of have pinching Mouth parts. All oh, right, so these their mouth parts are grasping tools then of a kind? Yeah, so if you picture being a spider on the web, you're not going to push down into your prey because there's no ground there to, to press against it. You can't put force on them. So you need little grabby mouth parts to get them from either side. If I may be so bold, I think it's fair to say that your favourite kind of spiders, I know you're not supposed to have, <laughs> it's like having favourite children, isn't it? Yeah. But if your favourite kind of spiders are the jumping spiders, the uh, this this first group, and you call them the gateway to a spider addiction. <laughs> when we say jumping spiders, mm. what kind of a jump are we talking about? Are we talking about leaping spiders or are these like smaller jumps than that? Cute little kitten pounces. <laughs> <laughs> so these are tiny little things. They're, they're very, very furry. They can often be quite colourful and they're very cute and endearing. Uh, we talked about the spider before not having very good eyesight. So spiders that don't have good eyesight have little tiny eyes. You can hardly see where they are. Jumping spiders are the opposite. They have very, very good eyesight. And what that means is they have two big sort of doe eyes that face forward. And I guess something in this triggers our little parental instincts. We see something with a little cute puppy dog eyes staring at us. Yeah, they're like big and black and glossy. Mm. And they look vaguely sad too. They sort of look, <laughs> it's, it's like, won't you be kind to me sort of face. I mean, this is anthropomorphizing, I know, which is yeah. something I shouldn't say in front of a scientist, I know. But nonetheless, they do look kind of those big, gigantic, glossy eyes do look kind of sweet, don't they? And whenever I'm talking to people at spiders and they go, oh, no, I, I don't like any spiders, guaranteed I can jump on my phone, look up a picture of a jumping spider, and I haven't had a single person disagree yet. Everyone goes, oh, okay, that one's pretty cute. I'll give you that. <laughs> can they see... You, mean, you mentioned the ones who are sitting on the webs can't see very well, but are the ones with these big black eyes, are they good eyes comparatively? Yes, they're kind of like mini telescopes inside their heads. So they don't have circular eyes like we do, their, are, their eyes are tubes that go back into their head. Uh, there's a particular species of jumping spider, it's been studied really well, called Portia, and these have the best eyesight of any spider, perhaps any uh, uh, invertebrate that we know of. They can sort of hyper-focus onto objects far away using these tiny kind of little telescopes and they kind of work just like uh, telephoto lenses. They have multiple lenses along this telescope that let them focus at different depths. 
Have you been in a room with one of these spiders and watched it looking at you, looking around the yeah, room? Yeah, it's kind of eerie. So we're studying these these Porsche spiders and we we're actually doing an experiment looking at how they hunt other spiders. So we'd put them in a, a chamber with other spiders and give them a choice of different types of prey. And so I was sitting in this sort of featureless lab with them and have this Porsche spider in a jar and put it out on the table in front of me and just sort of let it go and make its choice. But more often than not, the spiders would, when I let them out of the jar, they would just turn and look at me and sort of, it's almost like they were looking me up and down, sort of judging me on the spot. Yes, right, yes. Who is this bearded man who has dared put me in a jar? But what, <laughs> what do you think that what what do you think they're doing when they're looking at you so so closely? So these Porsche spiders are also really intelligent. They've become models for very 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 clever invertebrates. So as, I mean, as far as I know, they're actually just assessing me, going, "What is this thing? Is it is it interesting?" And they can't really turn their eyes so whenever they want to look around they have to turn their whole body to have this sort of very endearing head cocking up and down glance they do that again like you said we shouldn't anthropomorphize but you just can't help fall in love with this little creature just cocking its head and looking at you so endearingly so it actually turns its whole body around and to check you out totally yeah so you're the rogue element in the room in its mind and a threat to it in that in that sense Pretty much. Well, I mean, I don't know if it even did see me as a threat because they would then turn around and then go about their business and I would you know, walk away from the experimental arena and, and do its own thing. But, yeah, they, they definitely take in a lot more of their world than I think we realise. You say they are the brainy end of the spider mm. family there. Uh, the, why are they considered to be brainy? How do we know that they're, they're brainy apart from having this unnerving ability to check human <laughs> beings out like that. We think they're brainy because they have to hunt other spiders. So to, to hunt a, another predator, you have to outwit them, especially these guys. They're not the biggest, strongest things on the planet. They're you know, half the size of your little fingernail. So they've got to use their wits to oh, take down other small. spiders. Yeah, half yeah. the size of a fingernail? Mm. All right. Yeah. So, so they can take out bigger spiders than them? Yeah, so they can take out these big orb web spiders we were talking about before. They can take out sort of thicker house spider-looking things. And how they do that depends on the type of spider. So they can actually look at a spider that they've never seen before, never encountered before, and just assess it and figure out the best way of taking it down. So that might mean figuring out that, okay, this one doesn't have great eyesight, I'm going to sneak up to it from the side, or it does have good eyesight, I'm going to come at it from behind, or it's sitting in a web, I don't want to walk across the web, maybe I'll climb up above it and lower myself down a la Tom Cruise Mission Impossible and, and jump on it from above. So you're saying it's got very different strategies for different kinds of prey? Yes, and it comes up with them on the spot. This is a creature, as you say... That's as big as half your, your fingernail. Mm -hmm. it, it must have a tiny speck for a brain. It does. How, how does it do it then? I mean, <laughs> we wow. don't know is the short, short answer. So we always thought that to make these sort of complex calculations, you had to have a big mammal brain, whereas these guys have little tiny spider brains. So this sort of information is challenging how we understand animal cognition, how we understand computation to be able to make these sorts of calculations with such relatively simple brains. Well, I've had a conversation with a bee scientist who wanted to study how it is a bee can seem to unerringly fly through like the centre of a broken window. It, it mm. won't go anywhere near the edges. It somehow is able, with its kind of equally minuscule brain, able to find its way. And, and, and his theory was that it can see the landscape rushing towards it and it has this kind of stripped-down sleek, fit-for-purpose brain that can only do a few things but do them extremely well. Maybe this is what applies here. But then you say there's all these different strategies. This, this, is, this is quite fascinating. I, I don't suppose we know the answer of how a spider is able, such a tiny creature is able to compute so many different approaches. No, and they do the kind of intelligence tests with them that they do with you know, rats and other larger mammals that we think of being intelligent. We give them mazes in the lab and actually ask them, all right, how do you navigate from this point to that point and give them all sorts of obstacles in the way? I think we're really just scratching the surface of these guys. Perhaps the feature spider of this family is the peacock spider. Tell me the story of how that became an internet phenomenon. So it would have been about uh, 2010, 2011, I guess the advent of 
things like social media, things like YouTube and digital photography, uh, a guy called Jurgen, also an Australian guy, started putting up videos on YouTube of these peacock spiders that he'd filmed. And what he actually started filming was the mating dance of male peacock spiders. Now, you can probably guess from their name, they're called peacock spiders because of this dance. They have this abdomen that's very, very flat and very, very colourful. And they'll lift up this abdomen and wave it around and shake it just like a, a peacock would shake its tail. Like when you say colourful, what kind of colours are we talking about? Uh, iridescent, blue, reds, greens, oranges, whites, yellows. They actually have really black blacks, which is really interesting. They've measured how black peacock spider blacks are and they're blacker than black. It's hard to describe without sounding like I'm doing a spinal tap nice. bit. No, no, <laughs> it actually sounds like those kind of colour bars you get on TV, old TVs for the old test patterns by the sound of things. Yeah. It's that iridescent. And, and do they use those colours to attract a mate the same way peacocks will, peacock male peacocks will show off their plumage to, to attract a mate? Yeah, so it's only the males that are colourful like this. The females are a dull mottled brown, so this is a courtship signal for the females. And how tiny are these these spiders? Again, these are, uh, sit on happily on your little fingernails, tiny, tiny little things. And these are Australian icons now. We don't get them anywhere else in the world. These are Australian animals, peacock spiders, so we can have as much pride in them as we do our koalas and kangaroos and, and platypus. Could there be some in my garden that I just can't see? Or can we get them around Sydney? Yeah. They're very, very, very hard to find because they're so small, so you've got to spend a long time looking for them. Have you found them in your garden? <laughs> I've always been looking for peacock spiders. There's The people that work on them just have an eye for them. They hang on a bushwalk and just spot them left, right and centre. I don't have that eye yet. The very first one I found was a couple of years ago in, in my garden, and I I know that we're just learning so much about peacock spiders. People are finding new species left, right and centre. And I don't know anyone that works on peacock spiders up where in the area where I live. So I thought... I'd probably find a new species. I bet you this is a new species. So I got it in a jar, brought it inside, got out my, my camera, got, you know, zoomed in and got some macro photos, got it this beautiful you know, plumage, as you called it, on the back, jumped online, looked for photo references, and I, I find that, it, no, it wasn't a new species. I'd already find uh, what they call the common peacock spider. Oh, the common one. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. How insulting. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing common about it at all. Given that most of us, I think, when we have a picture of a spider, a generic spider in our head, we're thinking back to the tarantula or perhaps even some of us might go far to think of Shelob in, <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Would you rather, when people think of a generic spider, if they're going to be proper patriotic Australians to think of the peacock spider, this cute, furry, colourful, sweet little thing instead? I think so, yeah. Or at least a jumping spider. I mean, statistically, our stereotype spider should be a jumping spider. There are more species of jumping spider than any other type of jumping spider, and the ones we're probably most likely to come across are little jumping spiders in our garden. So, yeah, they should be our, our stereotype spider, a little cute, fluffy, kitten-like spider. Do spiders sleep? Yes, they do, and we think they also dream while well, they sleep. How could you know such a thing? <laughs> as much as we can know such a thing, you know, we look at uh, other mammals and we know that they go into uh, REM states, rapid eye movement states, where they move their eyes side to side in their sleep. And this is what we do when we dream. And so we see other mammals do that and go, okay, they must also be dreaming and sort of processing all this visual information in their minds. Jumping spiders do the same thing. They have show rapid eye movements when they sleep. They've studied it where spiders sort of sleep hanging upside down from a piece of silk and their eyes can do these little side-to-side -side movements during their sleep. Now, if they're also very visual animals, it sort of is safe to assume that they would also need to process this information cognitively. And as far as we can tell, spiders dream. The dream lives of spiders. Who knows what they're thinking about? That sounds about. like young adult <laughs> fiction to me, doesn't it? That sounds fantastic <laughs> to me. Who knows what they're processing yeah. you know, the day, the intensity of the day that they're, that they're sleeping off. There's a, a spider you refer to called the, the bolus spider. Now, mm. I've seen this spider at work in a David Attenborough documentary, and it's pretty amazing. Mm. Tell me about these spiders. They eat moths. We know mm -hmm. that. They eat moths. How does the bolus spider prepare to trap these airborne targets of theirs? So they catch these moths with silk. Lots of spiders use silk, but they use silk in a very, very particular way. 
So these spiders hunt at night when moths are flying around. They'll climb to the, the tip of a branch or a leaf and then they'll start releasing a pheromone and this pheromone mimics uh, female moth pheromones. Right, so they're luring the male moth in with the chemical smell of a female moth that's yes. just sort of floating around them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what do they do? So these pheromones are just sort of floating in the air. The moths are going to be flying somewhere around the vicinity. The next step is to try and catch those moths. So these spiders release a single thread of silk that's weighted down with a sort of a glue droplet on the end. Like a little gob? Yes. And then they just start spinning it around in circles like a picture of a cowboy with a lasso, you know, spinning it around and around. Well, with their little head. spidery leg, they... What, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. so they spin it around like a, a sticky lasso then. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> it's exactly what they do. And there's circles that you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it intercepts a moth. And the glue sticks to it, the silk sort of wraps around it, they pull it in and, and eat it. So, the, oh, so <laughs> once it's stuck to the moth, they just keep swinging so it spins the, the, the web, uh, the, the strand of silk. Well, I guess it. the moth sort of stops the spin and it's too heavy and it falls, but by that stage it's tangled up in that thread of silk. And then they can pull it up and then wrap it in a little cocoon of silk like, like every other spider. Like Frodo in, Precisely. in Return of the King, right? Yeah. Spun it around so that, that's it for the moth yeah. again. When you look at a big female orb web spider sitting in her web, tell me how a male would approach the female to mate and what's at stake for the male as it tries to mate with the big female in the middle of her orb web? Their lives are at stake, to put it bluntly. So the big spiders you'll see in the backyard in these big webs are probably going to be the female. The males are these little, little, little tiny Things that oh, can, they're much smaller, are they, mm, than they, the females? Yeah, right. they're little pinprick-sized things. But to get to that female in the middle of a web, he has to walk under a trap as well. So this female sitting, listening out for vibrations. If he creates any vibrations he shouldn't, she might think he's food. So instead of just tiptoeing and hoping for the best, these males can actually uh, signal their intentions by playing a song. To, to put it bluntly. So what the do same... you mean? What do you mean by playing a song? <laughs> what, what, plucking the web like a guitar again? Exactly, yeah. So really? These, yeah. What, what, there's a kind of a, there's a, kind of a what, a, 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 a vibrational music that appeals to the female spider through the web? Precisely. So, Ooh. I mean, think about how attuned these spiders are to vibrations. That's the world. They're not seeing the world like we are. They're hearing the world. So that female can hear the wind blowing through her web. She can hear a leaf falling onto her web. She can hear the difference between a fly in a web or a grasshopper in a web. And so she can also hear this little song, this little strumming that the male does as he approaches, <laughs> signalling his intentions. This is a very high-stakes cultural moment here in the world of spiders. <laughs> then, So the music's got to be pleasing to the, the, the female spider and indicate that it's a potential mate as well. Yes, yeah. precisely. Right. Because if the music's not good... She'll will eat him. She, she will eat him, will yeah. she? She will eat him. Right. If she, even if she's just not interested in mating that day, she, she'll <laughs> happily go, all right, I'll, I'll have this. So it's sex or death for yeah. this, this male spider. So if, if the music is pleasing to the female, what does she then do? So she will then just wait for the male to arrive and do his, his thing, essentially. There are other male spiders who use a different strategy. Uh, so some of these large Gordon orbweb spiders... Uh, rather than uh, singing to the female or playing her song, they're, they're a bit sneakier uh, and will wait for the female to be busy eating. So she and they'll get, sneak up on her? Pretty much. Once, once her fangs are busy dealing with a, a moth or a fly or something, they're not going to be busy dealing with the male. And so all, you'll have all these males sort of waiting around the edges of, of her web, waiting for the perfect moment to just dart in. Uh, uh, get the job done, to put it uh, politely, and then and then quickly leave again. I have to ask, how do they get the job done? Uh, how, how do they actually impregnate the female? So they have these little pair of, of special legs underneath their head. They're called pedipalps. Picture like a little pair of boxing gloves under, under a spider head. Uh, this is what they, they'll use to transmit sperm. So they'll actually put a little droplet of sperm on this little leg. They've got a, a bunch of tubes in there that will suck up the sperm. And then they'll quite literally reach over and, and, and place it uh, in her. Afterwards, mm-hmm. he will sometimes leave 
a little bit of himself behind as a parting yeah. gift. Like she doesn't <laughs> capture his heart so much as some other part of his anatomy. Is this true? Yeah. So if if you're a male spider and you're mating, you want to make sure that that you're the one to be fertilizing those eggs and not the other dudes hanging yeah. around. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so one way to do that is I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of ways to to put this delicately. You need to clog her up. Right. You, you yeah. call it the, the, the <laughs> I believe the phrase you use in your book is a genital plug. Yes. Right. And so sometimes that can be a little bit of a waxy secretion you leave leave there. Other times you just rip your arm off and leave it there. Okay, that doesn't seem very kind. Nonetheless, uh, <laughs> both, both, both creatures there. Afterwards, mm-hmm. might she just eat him anyway? Yeah, and, and for the males, this might not be such a bad idea. So think about if, you, if you're a male and you've only got two of these little arms, if you've mated twice, you've lost both your arms, you can't mate again. So you may as well just think, what's the point in living, right? <laughs> so you may as well just, just give up and be eaten. Is it true that she might even devour him while he's having sex with her? Yeah. So Australian redbacks are actually famous for this. So <laughs> they do this thing that they, they call it, they call it a somersault. So as they're attached to the female, as this little arm is inserted, the male will sort of cartwheel from where he is, and just plonk his abdomen right in her mouth, just sort of out of volunteering to get eaten. And so as he's finishing his, his job, she can just start digesting him. Right. And is she puking all over him while this is happening? Yeah. So spider feeding, we might think of it as them using their fangs to suck up food, but the fangs are just used for venom. They're actually just puking up digestive fluids with their mouth and sucking it up. It's a hard life out there in the wild. Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. You've got a lot to say about the phobia that a great many people have towards spiders. And this is quite a widespread thing. Now, you've taught zoology classes at uni to students who are not normally squeamish people to begin with. I mean, what kind of things are you asking them to do before you bring the spiders into the room, James? Oh, we've uh, dissected animals, we've dissected pig fetus, we've gone you know, digging through compost to look for soil invertebrates. There's all sorts of strange and wonderful things you can do in a university biology lab. Right. So that's pretty powerful in the old olfactory senses, that, oh, yes. that kind of work. <laughs> so, so these aren't squeamish people at all. Well, what happened when you brought live spiders into these classes? I brought in some webs of uh, leaf-curling spiders, kind of thing we get in our gardens as well, put them down in front of the classroom, didn't really think about it, and then there was this audible squeal a very high-pitched squeal that kind of signalled who in the class was was squealing. Weirdly enough, in this class of very, very go-get-em students, it sounds terrible to stereotype, but all of the girls and women just hated the sound of this spider being brought out and put in front of them. Right, it was really gendered like that, was it? Yeah, surprisingly so. What? You don't think they were genuinely, like, disgusted because they're, they're not squeamish, the men no. and not the women or the men in this... What do you think was producing that reaction? I think it's what they thought they had to do. I think it's one of these sort of behavioural shorthands we use to talk about something that we don't know much about. I think about you know, if when you get stuck in a lift with someone you don't really know and you feel like you have to make conversation, you immediately go to, oh, hot outside, isn't it? And then there's nowhere to go from there. We see spiders, we don't really know what to talk about them, so we revert to this uh, oogie-boogie spiders and it tends to be very gendered. And this is something that comes out in the research as well. Spider fears and phobias are much, much, much more common in females than males. And seeing these sort of things happen in the lab makes me kind of think, all right, this this is not genuine. This is some sort of ritual we're going through. Yeah, my daughter hates spiders, mm. hates and fears them. And she she won't be told by my wife and I that that they're they're harmless, the spiders that are in our house, and uh, we should just release them to the garden. No, her attitude is, no, we've got to kill them because she she actually kind of, she argues, only half in jest that they're actually full of malice (laughs) towards (laughs) towards humans there. So why don't we like this? 
Is there something more deep-seated than socialisation here? I mean, is it something to do with the way they move, the fact that they scuttle? That seems to produce an adverse reaction in people. So psychologists have studied this a lot because spider fears are more common than any other type of fear in the world. More than heights, dogs, snakes, flying spiders come out, number one. So they're really interested in finding out why these little, tiny, frail, benign things can generate such fear. And it's really interesting, the kind of things that get reported are things like hairiness, kind of things like legginess. Nobody ever kind of says that the fact that they're venomous makes them scary. It's just the sort of the general vibe of them. But dogs are hairy and they've got legs. Mm. So do cats. We love those those guys. Yeah. What, what's, why not spiders? It's something... Do you just think it's some kind of strange cultural idea that's been passed on that some of them might be venomous, venomous and so we have this ad, adverse reaction to them because of that or something? Yeah. Whenever you ask people, where do you think your spider fears have come from, they never say, oh, I was bit by a spider as a kid and it was very traumatic, blah, blah, blah. But what people will always say are things like, oh, my mum hated them or my partner hates them. It's always this sort of shared story between people and you hear this happen whenever you have a group of people talking about spiders. It's kind of turns into this group session of sharing weird, creepy stories about how big and hairy things were and how, how freaked <laughs> out that person was. Yeah, and there's quite a few myths around spiders that you've exploded. Uh, tell me about your teenage encounter with a, a huntsman spider. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it would have been maybe 16 or 17, and I woke up in the middle of the night and had the sudden sensation of something on my cheek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> that's, having a, that's causing a reaction in me. Yeah, yes. And just sort of instinctively yeah. without thinking, I just swiped at it with my hand, ah. felt a big thwack. It must have been a good, decent-sized huntsman. You I mean it went, it, went, it went thwack when it landed? Thwack. <laughs> and in the dark, I just saw this silhouette, this big leggy silhouette shooting across the room. Goodness knows where it ended up. I never find it again. But yeah, I'd woken up with a, a huntsman on, on my face and when I, I thought this was hilarious and went around for the next couple of days telling people, guess what happened to me? I was that person telling this spider story to all my friends. Some other people thought it was hilarious, but weirdly, some people looked at me very seriously and said, ah, oh, you know why? It was drinking your saliva. I'm going to get in front of this. No, that's a myth. It's, not, it's a myth, it's is not it? It's not real. Right. Yeah. I see. I haven't heard that one before, but is that, that's, that's a quite, quite a common myth, is it? Yeah, I see it a lot on the internet. Nice, some sort of made-up statistic that, you know, the average person swallows 12.3 spiders in their sleep type of thing. Again, there's nothing to this. Not sure where it's come from, but it's just this weird myth that seems to to perpetuate. Uh, it's this specific number. 12.5 spiders <laughs> sounds about right, doesn't it? So so they're not after our saliva. When Of course, they could just get it from a little puddle of water in the bathroom if they really wanted to get it from somewhere or, or even from the toilet, I suppose. It's a little bit egocentric <laughs> thinking something you know, loves your saliva so much it wants to drink it up. Yeah. It's vaguely vampiric as well. <laughs> Can you just also explode the myth once and for all about white-tailed spiders, please? Yes, it's been busted many many times before. You might have heard that they cause necrotic lesions or gangrene or whatever. Yeah, you get the bite from the white-tailed spider and bits of you start falling off like a leper, essentially. That's the myth. Yeah. That's just not true. Absolutely nothing to it. It's been studied extensively. They've looked at the chemistry of the venom. They've gone back and looked at all the medical records you can get their hands on. Absolutely no evidence that white-tailed spiders are harmless in any way, really. There's no necrotizing bite from the, the white-tailed spider. No. What about the story that daddy longlegs spiders are the most venomous at all, but they just don't have fangs long enough to penetrate human skin? What's the, what about that one? Again, nothing to it. As far as we can guess, it might come from the fact that uh, daddy longlegs webs are pretty good at catching other spiders. So maybe someone has seen something like a redback caught in a daddy longlegs web and thought, oh, well, if it's... You know, Tough enough to take down a redback. It must be more venomous than the redback, but that's not actually how venom works. Chances are it's actually just the web that tangled the redback there and left it there. Daddy Longlegs venom is really, really benign. The research they've done actually shows it doesn't even work very well on insects. It kind of just sort of makes them a bit dopey and sleepy as opposed to killing them. There's there's absolutely no harm from Daddy Longlegs. Let's talk about the mygalomorphs, mygalomorphs, mm -hmm. the, 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 the tarantulas, the trapdoors. 
and the funnel webs, trapdoor spiders. What is this trapdoor that they build? I don't think I've, I think I've always known about trapdoor spiders. I've never been able to tell the difference between that and a huntsman or whatever else. Mm. What is this trapdoor that the trapdoor spider builds? So trapdoor spiders are essentially a type of tarantula. They live in a long cylindrical burrow they put in the ground and they'll, they'll, they can stay in there for life. They don't go around building burrows with them. It's their permanent home. And they'll put a little door on the top, like just a little circular Flap. Sometimes it's even attached with a little silk hinge that can open, open and close. It's a silk door, is it? It's often made of sort of dirt and sticks and debris and sort of held together with silk. And so their prey just simply is walking across the terrain and steps on the trapdoor and falls in? Is that yeah, how it goes? so they can often have silk sort of spanning out around from the entrance of their barrow and so they're also listening to that silk with their legs and grab them. The kind of weirdest one is that these purse web spiders they have these burrows that are lined with silk and the silk extends out to form this sort of, well, they call it a purse. It's like a flaccid sock or something that just sits on the surface. And they'll actually sit inside this little purse of silk and wait for creatures to to crawl across this silk purse and and nab them through the silk. Bizarre little creatures. Funnel web spiders that Mm. are prevalent in southwest, southeast Australia. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I was always told that these are the most deadly of all the venomous spiders. Is that true? We actually say they're the most venomous, but not the most deadly. Oh. Yes. So I think the deadliest uh, title goes to the, the maybe the recluse spiders over in Central America. That's good to know that they're recluses, then, isn't it? <laughs> and that might simply be because they're found in very, very remote places in Amazon where people don't have access to doctors and hospitals very easily. Here in Sydney, even though we have the most venomous spiders, we have easy access to healthcare. So no one's actually ever died from a, a funnel web since the 70s, I think, since we've had anti-venom. But yeah, they, are, they, they hold the title for most venomous. The venom that spiders carry, uh, it's typically a cocktail of neurotoxins. Is that right? And what happens once the venom enters uh, its prey? So it can be a couple of different things. There are uh, chemicals in there that can burst open cell walls. And yeah, as you said, there are other chemicals that can mess up your, your nerve cells. Sometimes this means switching the nerve cells in an animal off. So it messes up the, the I guess, the chemical pathway between nerve cells and paralyzes that animal. Disturbingly, though, sometimes it works the opposite way. It can actually turn nerve impulses on. So it gets, the chemicals get in between the nerve cells, essentially, and stops them from being able to turn their signals off. So picture, you know, imagine you're a little tiny fly, you have every single muscle nerve cell in your body turned on at once and you can't turn it off. So every muscle is pulling every which direction possible. Picture now that uh, 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 your fly spray works in the same way. So it turns on nerve cells and they can't turn off. So picture the way when you, you hit a fly with fly spray, it oh, just it starts wild. frantically right, buzzing. Right. It's just sort of tortured until it Shuts down. And might uh, a spider bite do that to a human as well? It can. Sometimes most spider bites are, are very sort of benign and innocuous. And the spider venom is not made for defence. It's made for hunting. So it's not, not for us. It's for other things. Oh, really? It's not a defensive thing? It's, it's just a hunting thing? Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that spider venom works on us is kind of just a weird, uh, unlucky coincidence that we have similar nervous systems to lots of other animals that can affect similar different... Uh, chemical pathways in us. But then why would it bite a human? It doesn't think we're prey, does it? It can be a, a sort of last resort um, t- a tactic, essentially. You know, if they feel in danger, they'll, they'll lash out. So that old sort of adage of if you leave them alone, they'll leave us alone is, is true. What would happen if your average suburbanite was built, uh, bitten by a something like a funnel web spider? So if... You think you'd be bitten by a funnel web, definitely get to hospital. What makes funnel web venom so potent is the fact that it's really fast acting. So these other spiders that are, are of what we call medical significance, their venom can be quite slow. It can take hours, maybe days to work. Funnel web venom uh, can fully escalate within an hour. Now, if you do suspect you've been bitten by a funnel web, there shouldn't be any ifs and or buts about it. One of the symptoms of funnel web bites is immediate searing pain. You'll have very large bleeding puncture marks in your skin. It's and, really and the worms, ambiguous. the site of the bite, will that sort of flare up and grow? or, or, or yep, Localised swelling, inflammation, that kind of thing. If you're unsure, 
if you've been bitten by a spider or what that spider is, no matter what, the best thing you can do is actually catch that spider. And I mean, that particular spider you think's bitten you, not just some random spider you find on the wall, not, oh, I'll, you know, uh, put a Band-Aid on and, and find that spider later. If, if symptoms sort of uh, advance and you need medical help, you want to take that spider to the hospital, the doctors, they can look at it and say, oh, that's a funnel web, let's get you in a hospital bed. Or they can say, oh, that's a black eye spider. Oh, that's have a, never going to ha- happen. <laughs> I mean, that's, no one's going to have the presence of mind to go, oh, I've got to catch that funnel web now. I mean, if you've bitten, bitten, the, the first thing you want to do is keep her right away from it. I'm, I, I don't suppose that hardly ever happens then, people bring the spider in that bit them into the hospital. No, and it's what makes understanding spider bites so hard because we just don't have good data on it. And because people are so worked up about spiders as well, we often suspect spider bites when there haven't been. You know, to, to definitively say, yes, this condition is a spider bite, we need to have the spider, we need to have it identified, the bite must be witnessed, and there must be symptoms from that bite. But instead, what we often see are people turning up to medical centres going, I've got this red welt, I think it's a spider bite. Or I saw a spider on my arm and now my ear hurts. I think I might have been bitten by a spider. It's really, really hard to get good medical data on spider bites. Spider silk now. Mm-hmm. The other extraordinary thing that they excrete. The stories of them, of the silk being tougher than Kevlar mm-hmm. protection, that's, that's a thing that's bandied about. Is that true? Yeah. So wait for wait. You can measure... Spider, still, spider silk strength and also its ability to absorb energy. It outperforms steel, it outperforms things like Kevlar, it outperforms rubber. It's a miraculous material. The sums, I mean, I've, I couldn't help but notice when I, um, in Queensland, the golden orb spider there seems to have a, it's a whole different thing to walk into that kind of a web mm. accidentally than it is to walk into a daddy long legs uh, web. You, it, it feels almost metallic. Which spider has the strongest kinds of silk? Well, overall, things like those golden orb spiders, that group has the strongest silk because they build these big webs sort of between trees. There's one particular spider that outperforms any other spider. It's called Darwin's Bark Spider. It's found in Madagascar. And it doesn't just build webs across pathways. It builds webs across rivers. So these can be five, six metres wide. And when they've measured this spider's silk... What? How far? Five or six metres. Wow. So it's spanning across rivers. They're just kind of your normal large orb web spider, but they're probably catching big insect prey like dragonflies, beetles, moths, that kind of thing. And when they eject the silk, do they eject it like Spider-Man from his little kind of wrist things or is it just, or do they have to pull it out? Yeah, they have to pull it out. There's no sort of muscles there to project it. You'll watch them with their legs just reeling it out from their abdomen. And having done so, if they're going to have a strand of silk that covers such extraordinary distances. So they just sort of let it blow out in the wind and see what it catches on? Is that what happens? Pretty much. Or if it's a smaller web that they're building amongst tree branches, they might sort of anchor a piece to one twig, walk around, find another anchor point and sort of pull it taut that way. Given the strength and elasticity of spiders, particularly of the Darwin bark spider, I think Mm -hmm. you, you, you said there, we get silk from caterpillars and that can be woven. Mm hmm has anyone tried to weave spider silk? Of course. <laughs> People have been trying this for centuries. Uh, the, the earliest attempts to try and use spider silk was to, to use it, I guess, like we would silkworm silk, getting little spider, they call them cocoons, you know, the silken egg sacs and seeing if we can essentially make felted things from that. That kind of advanced... Uh, to people actually trying to reel spider silks directly from the abdomen. This is something you can even do in your backyard. If you really want to, if you see a a spider releasing silk, you can sort of get a a twig or forceps, kind of get that strand of silk from them and just very, very gently pull. And you can sort of even reel it onto a spool if if you want to. (laughs) Have you done such a thing? Have you done that? Yeah. I've worked in many a spider lab and they just keep, they just keep producing silk. So the more you gently pull, if you don't pull too hard, it just sort of keeps coming. Is that what it is? It like milking a spider? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Do they call it silk milking or something? I have heard it referred to as that. Yeah. Wow. Does the spider mind? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> and and but but if people have been trying to do this, why aren't we wearing clothes out of spider silk? It's really, really laborious and hard. So uh, people have gone to ridiculous lengths to try and make this work. So my favourite story is if a 
Jesuit priest from France who went doing missionary work in Madagascar. And while he was there, I don't know, just in his, his spare time or something, engineered a complete spider silk harvesting and manufacturing facility. So they would harvest silk from spiders. Uh, we, uh, or t- I guess, spin that silk into threads, get so much thread that they can then weave it into fabrics and, and then make it into textiles. Now, this all happened in the so late 1800s. There's reports of the at the 1900 World Expo, there are apparently a full set of hanging bed curtains on display made entirely from spider silk. But whatever was made then doesn't exist anymore. We have no samples of it. There are no pictures, no drawings. We have to imagine uh, what it's like. Well, actually, no, we don't have to imagine because a couple of years ago, an entrepreneur and a textiles maker found these records, thought, that sounds so crazy, it might just work. Went back and actually replicated the methods of this priest, and it's possible. You can weave textiles from spider silk. And what does it look like once you've woven this into a garment? So this is the silk of these golden orbweb spiders. They're called golden orbwebs because if you catch the silk in the right light, you can see it has this yellowy sort of sheen it's quite pretty, yeah. to it. And what they find is when they wove it into fabrics, it was bright, shimmering gold. You, if you see these fabrics, you can look it up online, it looks like it's woven from gold leaf. Isn't This is the natural colour of the silk is bright, shimmering gold. But this is a very difficult process, given that there's only one of these things in existence. Yes, and that one thing took, I think, four or five years to make, hundreds of people, millions of spiders, that it's just not cost-effective, I guess. Can it be produced artificially? Yeah, so once we had the... Once scientists had the gene for spider silk, they thought, great, we're going to get this, start putting it into other animals that can... Uh, we, we can rear a lot easier than spiders and get the silk proteins from them. So some of the earliest things I tried were to put it in E. coli bacteria and we can essentially brew up big vats of E. coli and as these bacteria are, are metabolizing, they're also spitting out spider silk proteins. Tried putting it into yeasts, tried putting it into to rice plants. This is so sci-fi, all of this. <laughs> yeah. What about animals? Okay, so the idea was we want more silk and we want it quicker. So there is this a, a bunch of Americans who took a very American approach to this, thought, right, we want big silk things, we've got to get these proteins, put them in big animals, and they went straight to goats and they put spider silk genes in goats. Oh, my God. They didn't, they didn't work their way up through mice and rats and rabbits, straight, straight to goats. They put the gene in the part of the genome associated with milk production So we ended up with these genetically modified goats that when they made milk, they also produced silk proteins. So you could go up to this goat, milk it like you would any other goat, and in that milk was spider silk. Oh. (laughs) But again, this clearly hasn't worked because we're not living in a world of spider garments, are we? No. So it took all the logistics of catching and rearing and harvesting spiders and just replaced it with running a dairy farm as well. Yeah, that sounds easy, but clearly... What, the goat just couldn't deliver enough spider silk. So oh the my silk God. is, it, it doesn't, <laughs> I don't want you to picture milking an udder and having it shoot out a web. Right. The, the silk proteins are dissolved in, in the milk. Oh. So then there's this whole other chemical process of isolating those molecules oh. and processing them and spinning them. It's still very, very uh, laborious, but people are still doing it. There's their startups still working with the coli and things to try and make artificial spider silk into something. Whenever we say it's tougher than Kevlar, people imagine you might make bulletproof vests out mm. of spider silk. You, uh, it's not possible, though. Tell me why that's not really possible. Because uh, spider silk, as well as being strong, it's also very elastic. So people have worked on it. They've made you know, bulletproof plates out of artificial spider silk. Uh, and the way the, the lead scientist phrased it at the time, I think, was, yes, we can make a plate that will absorb, that will stop a bullet in its tracks, but that bullet will be on the wrong side of your torso by the time it stops. <laughs> so it's strong, but it's still very stretchy. You also write that spider silk has these other amazing properties. It's antibacterial, hypoallergenic. Mm-hmm. Tell me how it's thought that it might be used for surgical implants. Yeah, so you can put uh, spider silk, you can implant it into animals and it doesn't seem to elicit an immune response like many other uh, artificial things you put into people would. So 
people are eyeing it off as maybe something we can use, maybe we can use it as a scaffolding for, for cell growth and, and, and tissue regrowth. Maybe we can make artificial tendons out of it. There's actually been a study in rats using spider silk uh, artificial spider silk as a coating for silicon implants and how it reduces sort of recovery time because it doesn't cause as much inflammation. So we could soon be having spider silk silicon implants put in us. Right, for something as boutique as that, you could even, I don't know, are they looking at 3D printers working with spider silk to produce such things? Yeah, so we always tend to think about spider silk as being made into fibres and what we can do with these fibres. But as you think about it more, we're kind of realising maybe we actually don't want to replicate spider silk. Unless we're going to be building spider webs, why would we want to replicate it exactly? We can take the properties of this and adapt it and modify it and to do other cool things. So you can process these spider silk proteins to do different things. They can form sheets, they can form capsules, you can form mesh and, and webs. Uh, so they can be used for all sorts of, of medical applications. There have been five space missions. <laughs> yes. Five, count them, five whole space missions where spiders have been taken aboard a, a space shuttle or put into space stations and the like to see how they build their webs in microgravity. Mm-hmm. What has been learned from these five separate spiders in space missions? So now they've told us we're bringing spiders into space to do this important research of what uh, the effect microgravity has on them building their webs. And that's sort of the, the public rationale for doing this. But I think what we've really learned at the end of it is that spiders are cool and that people are fascinated with them. Yes, they brought spiders up into space. They've seen that they can really, really quickly build webs. They really quickly adapt to microgravity. But it's not the best spider science that's ever been done on the planet. And it never was supposed to be. The point of these missions was to get people interested in space travel. So post uh, the moon landing, NASA was faced with this problem of where do we go now? How do we make space even cooler? And they thought... Spiders. Everyone loves spiders, apparently. And, you know, if if says a lot about our natural fascination with spiders, if rockets and astronauts and space travel is not cool enough, we need spiders to, to amp it up. So each one of these spidery space missions has been part of a public outreach program in partnership with a school or an educational organization. They're sending data back to Earth. They're streaming videos with astronauts pointing at these spiders in space. It's been completely brilliant having this conversation with you, James. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.